Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm interviewing Fred Bush about his book, Creating a Psychoanalytic Mind, a Psychoanalytic Method and Theory, published by Rutledge in 2014. Fred Bush is a training and supervising analyst, Boston Psychoanalytic Institute and Society, he has published five books, the latest of which is The Analyst's Reveries, um, 2019, published by Rutledge, and a forthcoming, actually, I think yesterday, it sort of began to appear, uh, let's see, a book called Dear Candidate, Analysts from Around the World Write Their Personal Reflections on Psychoanalytic Training, Education, and the Profession, um, also from Rutledge. So I'm looking forward to taking a look at that book, and maybe that could be a future interview. He, um, Fred has also published over 70 papers, and his work has been translated into multiple languages. He's a sought-after supervisor, speaker, and an all-around scholar and expert in all things clinical psychoanalysis. So, Fred, um, welcome, and can you please tell us why, why you wrote this book, what it's about? Well, uh, first of all, Philip, thank you for having me. Uh, um, <clears throat> well, this book, uh, it, you know, what happened is over time, I kept on uh, modifying my ideas, and uh, <clears throat> and my and my technique. Had changed from where I originally started, although it, it was just, it was a continued elaboration of what I started writing in the early '90s. But I had added a whole bunch of uh, ideas, been integrating some of uh, analyst ideas from uh, France, especially, and. Uh, so I felt it was time to kind of re- reformulate my ideas. And uh, I had published a number of papers, but I felt I needed the broader uh, canvas of a book to uh, explain where I was at this particular point. So that was the reason. Uh, that was what led me to write this book. Yeah, so it's very much a book about your about clinical psychoanalysis, I guess would say, and about how you practice it. Mm-hmm. Is, right? And it's very much about my growth as an analyst. Um, in that, my my ideas kept evolving over time. So, in that way, well, let me put it this way: uh, in another paper, at some point, I I said. That it took me many, many years to feel like I became a psychoanalyst. I mean, I had been graduated for longer than I'd like to 
uh, imagine or like to say, but uh, but I kept on feeling that it, how I was before wasn't as good an analyst as I was becoming, and, and this book was how I had become the best analyst I felt I could be at that particular time. That's really great to hear. Yeah. I, I have that same experience. Every year I think, okay, now I'm finally getting it. Now I'm really digging in. Now, now I'm really being an analyst. And then and then a year later, I feel like I'm, now I'm really getting it. <laughs> I was getting better, I hope. Um, when I first saw the book and I saw the title, Creating a Psychoanalytic Mind, I thought it was about that issue of how to help a therapist become an analyst, how to help a therapist develop a psychoanalytic mind. But is that what you mean by the title? I, well, it's not, uh, it's not it. No, it's more how we help patients create a psychoanalytic mind. That is, uh, and, and what I mean by a psychoanalytic mind is, is based upon, well, somewhere I write in the book, that what I, I see psychoanalysis as able to offer, which I don't think any other method does, um, and at least what I consider my brand of psychoanalysis, which is basically a Freudian point of view. And um, so what I see psychoanalysis is offering is that... Um, uh, that when a patient, um, when, when a patient, let me back up. Um, I don't think any analysis is perfect. Uh, there are always things that are left undone, and, and in certain areas where we might still be prone to react in neurotic ways. And what the brand of psychoanalysis, um, writing about in creating a psycholytic mind is that when somebody finds themselves in difficulty, uh, they consult their own mind. That is, they, that they, they look into their own mind to try and understand what it is that's going on. And the analysis is geared toward helping the patient uh, learn, uh, I'll, well, I'll say this: learn to use their own mind as a as a method of understanding. Um, <clears throat> there's another part to this, and that is, I think what, uh, what what's become clear to me is that um, what what brings people into our office is that. They have these what these uh, very uh, simple representations of life in their mind, so that um, in, and they react in these situations like a, a stimulus response. So every boss becomes the bad boss. Every partner becomes uh, the annoying partner. Um, and what psychoanalysis does is, is, is tries to build 
these simple representations into something more complex so that over time we see all the things that lead to patients thinking in this particular way so that they now have all of these other ideas in, in their mind and um, it allows them to uh, to go towards reflection uh, and rather than immediately towards action. So in one simple phrase, I think creating a psycholytic mind helps the move, patient move from uh, uh, the likelihood of action to the possibility of reflection. So in, in that sense, it seems like it's emphasizing um, where we where change happens is, is in how people think, how our patients think, their minds, which might be differentiated from some maybe some other past schools that what emphasized um, coming into awareness of repressed libidinal drives or or some or inclining maybe a, a kind of a, a shifting in object relations. It seems like, um, well, you see, yeah. I, I think <clears throat> all of those, I think that's not enough. All of those help towards building more complex representations uh, so that, you know, object relations uh, are part of building a complex representations, instinctual derivatives and understanding how they're playing a role. Uh, play a role in um, building more complex representations. So, you see, my my method is um, is it, how to put it is pretty formalized, but I use lots of other theories to understand my patients. I don't understand them in just a particular way. The difference is, in my approach, is how I understand them. Not, I mean, not, I'm sorry. Uh, it's not, <laughs> it's how I understand them. It's, it's the way that I try to put things to patients and help them uh, in and how I approach patients with my understanding, that's the difference. I approach patients differently than, say, a Kleinian or uh, an you know, intersubjectivist or a relational person. So let's try to like, get at what is that, that method you use. And I, 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 you mentioned a discipline message, which... Um, I could see in writing and reading this book. I learned so much reading this book, and this is the kind of book I like to read before I begin an analytic day or during the day because it sort of gets me warmed up in my analytic mind and and sort of thinking in a particular way. Um, so, and I I like how throughout the book you 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 are in conversation with other schools and traditions. It feels like I always really appreciate people who approach psychoanalysis analysis with with a com, sort of a comparative mindset of knowing this isn't their way isn't the only way in psychoanalysis there's these other ways we need to 
address. And I think you, you do that really well. But to get it your particular way, how, let's say so a patient comes in. Um, I, don't, I remember the final chapter, uh, there was a, a patient talking to a, an analyst. It wasn't you. It was, wasn't one of your patients. But it was, and he, there was a, there'd been an alarm salesman came to his house, uh, tried to sell him an alarm system, a high-end one to he and his wife. Um, and so I forget the details there, but in, as you would approach hearing that kind of material, what would you be listening for in terms of, I don't know, the unconscious or, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or, or if you can think of a better idea, a better example of what you listen for in a session? Well, <clears throat> I, I, I can't say I listen Let me put it this way. I try to listen for where the patient is at that moment and what they're able to tell me. Uh, And my, um, again, my understanding of people is multidimensional. But it's how I approach patients that's different. Um, And... One of my early papers that you know, I keep on building on is interpreting in the neighborhood. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is it's based upon a phrase by Freud in which uh, he, uh, in this paper, Wild Analysis, uh, where uh, a woman comes to a physician and uh talks about uh, uh, headaches, all kinds of things like that. And what Freud ends up... uh, You there, Philip? Okay. What what Freud ends up... uh, Oh, so what what this physician says to the patient is that uh, she's suffering from sexual fr- frustration and that she should start masturbating. And uh, uh, this Victorian woman uh, <laughs> flees immediately, uh, screaming that this doctor is crazy. And uh, what what this physician, who wasn't an analyst, uh, what he was basing his uh, views on was um, Freud's first theory of anxiety, which was that anxiety was due to damned up libido, and therefore if you brought in the unconscious, it would uh, immediately break through the dam and the patient wouldn't feel anxious. But what Freud said ultimately was that uh, and I love this phrase, that giving interpretations to patients like that is like handing out menus in a time of famine. It just doesn't really (laughs) fulfill the patient's need. And in order to be effective, the patient has, the analyst has to be in the patient, what he says has to be in the patient's neighborhood, uh, somewhere where the patient 
can uh, appreciate and understand why the analyst is bringing this to the patient's attention because it's something close to what the patient uh, has heard themselves say. So uh, this is this is the basis of, of, of my approach. There's lots of other aspects to it, but uh, uh, staying close to where the patient is and what they're able to talk about is uh, what I what is where I work, and so I don't particularly listen to anything. But what the patient's bringing today, it's like Beyond's idea of <coughs> when I first heard it, I thought it was crazy, but now it makes sense to me. Listening without memory and desire. Um, so, also with this, uh, the patient who comes in talking about somebody trying to uh, uh, trying to bring them a new alarm system, trying to buy have them buy a new alarm system. Uh, uh, I would assume that um, <laughs> it's interesting uh, because. Another aspect of my work, which which I explore in this book, which I've been talking about for a long time, is that um, is that most analysts don't do defense analysis anymore, or as it shows up in analysis with patients' resistances, um, and uh, you know. Uh, in 1923, Freud uh, uh, came to the conclusion, and what led to the change from his topographic to his to his structural theory was that patients had unconscious defenses, and in his previous model, he couldn't account for it, and that the un- that the uh, that patients would bring in unconscious defenses, and it was an ego function, an unconscious ego function. Now, and then he developed a second theory of anxiety, which was um, that anxiety and other uh, feelings of danger are associated with the ego's response to some danger that's occurring. So, uh, that potentially changed the whole ball game in terms of how analysts work. That is, that they needed to work through the defenses against awareness of what's unconscious before you could talk with the patient about what's unconscious. So, and you know, in my work with patients, it made tremendous sense. To me, and so you know, I, I I work a lot with patients' defenses before uh, trying to uncover what's uh, behind those defenses. It, ma- it makes so much sense because if defenses are instituted because of uh, the catastrophes of of living, then. Uh, of course, you have to work through your defenses, 
before you get to what's behind them. I found uh, most analysts didn't do that. Um, and in fact, uh, most analysts feel that it, it uh, it's really not even necessary. So clients don't really deal with unconscious defenses. I mean, they point to things like projective identification, but they what they're trying to do is get to what's behind it rather than trying to analyze the reasons for having it in the first place, what the fears are, what the dangers are. Okay, so so this is helping me. The story about the physician, the woman who came, uh, I forget now what, what the story was in terms of what her presenting problem was, but um, and then what you said about the, the man not wanting to buy the alarm system. In terms of helping our listeners understand the difference between going directly to interpreting the unconscious and staying with resistances or, and I want to get to the emphasis on the pre-conscious because that, that was really helpful to me. But So let's go this story of the man who tells his therapist that somebody tried to sell him an alarm system um, and he didn't want to buy it. So we could hear alarm in there and begin thinking about unconscious um, fears about uh, danger, attacks, um, assaults. That would be beginning to sort of sense into something deeply unconscious. But but we could also hear, and I think this is what you were saying in your, your chapter, hear this guy's resistance to buying uh, something that somebody's trying to sell him. So that's more an example. That's where you picked up um, in in the material of uh, of a resistance to hearing something in you. Have I got that right? Can you say what that how the preconscious fits into that? Um, and then tell our, our maybe our listeners what you mean by by the preconscious. Yeah, yeah. That uh, the patient without really realizing what uh, he or she is doing uh, brings in material that has been allowed into uh, the pre-conscious. Now, I have to understand my idea of the pre-conscious. I have to go back into theory. Uh, in, In Freud's last drawing of this structural theory, it was... A very different drawing than uh, I mean, the structural model was very different than uh, his 1923 model. In 1933, in the new introductory lectures, he had a had a model of of the structural theory, and the preconscious went from close to consciousness through a permeable barrier into the unconscious. So that uh, interpretations, when possible, need to be geared towards what may be pre- <laughs> I don't put it, pre-consciously unconscious, uh, or a pre-conscious that concern that has elements of the conscious, but also the unconscious. And this guy talking about the story about the alarm system is an example because it's come into consciousness. He's, you know, he's he, he can 
allow himself to bring it into his analyst's office, but it also has unconscious meaning that he's unaware of. And that's the place where I think we want to be, something that's knowable by the patient, but uh, also has elements that are unknowable. Yeah, one of the ways I liked um, how you gave, you give a lot of, in the second half of the book, it's more clinical. I think the first half was a little more theoretical. Is, is that right? Yeah. Um, so like you gave a lot of examples where a patient will come in and begin speaking about something and then move to something else and then maybe move to something else. And you follow you by looking at the similarities between these, these series of associations, you begin picking up what's, what's pre-consciously available something that shows up in maybe each of the associations and then you know you're you you know you're in the neighborhood of something that's pre-conscious i think i first came across your name um in reference to this idea of being in the neighborhood with am i right about that are you sort of the one who is most excited about that idea yeah that was uh yeah that was uh an early paper and 1993, and it was my most read paper. I still, I think. And so, another idea that um, I found very interesting was this idea of what you call language action. And some people who are familiar with psychoanalytic literature might think that sounds like action language, which I think an idea of Schaefer's. But can you talk to us about your idea of language action? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a very important concept. And it, it's once you get it, it you find it's very, very useful. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> there are times when patients are... Uh, well, let, me, let me go back. <clears throat> you know, there's a controversy in analysis at this point, and some people believe that all language is action. Um, I don't believe that. I believe there are times when the patient is telling the analyst the story via what you just described, these various associations they're having. But there are other times when the patient is talking and unconsciously, they're not meaning to, but they're attempting to do something with their language, attempting to do something to or with the analyst. So uh, a patient talking about dreams, uh, as, you know, can, they can talk about in a way that indicates the analyst that, that, you know, they have no interest in dreams. <laughs> They'll tell you a dream because you think you're supposed to, but they personally uh, don't think it's particularly useful. Um, or... Just lots of other ways that the patients are talking and they convey something to the analyst. And we might pick it up first via our counter-transference. You know, we're suddenly feeling uh, sad or annoyed or any one of a number of things. Uh, and we don't know where it's coming from. <clears throat> and, uh, and, 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 it's important when one has that feeling to consider the possibility 
that there's some way that the patient is talking that um, uh, that indicates that they're doing something. Uh, let me give you an ex- uh, one, you know, a specific example. Uh, uh, I have a, a, a patient, and um, uh, it, oftentimes when I when I I say something, and then the patient starts talking afterwards. I find myself lost in what they're saying, and I have no idea how they got from what I said to what they're talking about. And although in my mind I think the patient's able to reveal something and we're uncovering something really important, it it seems to all fade in the midst of the patient's language. so it, it, it first of all it took me a long time to figure that's what was going on. And uh, it, in this way, the I mean the patient was just associating, she was doing what she was supposed to do. Uh, but she was saying uh, what she was doing was she was negating what I was saying. You see, she was changing it into something in her own mind that had more to do with cultural factors or things she had already thought about, etc. So, uh, you know, all my interpretations were sort of ended up being blurred in her own mind for her own reasons. There was a struggle going on. where this patient was very ready to feel stupid. And so my telling her something often made her feel stupid, and she had to regain some sense of worthwhileness. But that's what I mean by language action. Patients talking, but they're doing something. Okay. They're, 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 and they're having a, sometimes a strong effect on you. So I want to ask about you mentioned countertransference because that always used to confuse me so much. And I think your book helped finally begin sorting some things out for me, but because, you know, you hear all the time, listen to your countertransference. And yet um, others will say, like, I think beyond in some passages talks about, we can't know our countertransference. Transference is an unconscious thing. Uh, And so how is an analyst supposed to know, his or her own countertransference, if it's unconscious. And I think you, uh, in your book, I don't know if you remember <laughs> where. If, if you don't, I'll maybe try to help you remember. But can you remember how you explained, how do we know our countertransference if it's unconscious? Yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, it's very simple <laughs> in a very complicated way. That is um, that... Um, I, I think the, the the way we find out about our unconscious is to see what comes to mind. That is, um, uh, you can't tell usually immediately what your reaction is about. You need some time to be able to think about it, reflect about it, uh, see what comes to mind about it. Uh, Dana Berkstein Green, an English analyst, uh, uh, 
she has this concept of rever- reverberation time. Uh, and, and what it means is, you know, you need something to kind of rattle around inside you uh, and see how it affects you in terms of your thinking and what comes to mind. So, um, you know, it's like uh, in my book on reverie, what I've criticized the most post Bionians is that they, they moved from seeing uh, reverie, which Bion saw as something you couldn't know about when it was first happening, uh, to only learning later if it was a reverie or not in Beyond's terms, as something that changes beta to alpha elements. But uh, people like Ogden and Farrow, uh, they've changed the game so that that they now believe that, uh, well, Ogden seems to believe that, you know, he's a reverie machine, and everything he thinks is a reverie, and uh, that uh, whether he says something or not to the patient will be helpful to the patient. And he doesn't really analyze his reveries. So that, that to me is uh, how one understands when countertransference. I wrote a paper called, uh, which I haven't published, called Ethical Countertransference, which I I, I, I try to say that it, it, it's, it's the analyst's obligation as an ethical analyst, a uh, responsible analyst, to uh, try and understand what these countertransference meetings are about in the only way that I know is via one's associations. Yes, that's what... Um... Now you're helping me remember what what I liked. I, I as I remember, you talked about so the the therapist, the analyst is having thoughts and feelings in response to what the the patient is saying, and these, I think you call them. We could think of those as derivatives of our one's own unconscious, and so then one has to be careful. Are these? Um, uh, related to the patient's unconscious, or are these my own unconscious? And so, being, I think you you bring some really wonderful examples in the book about how to be be careful about using your countertransference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if one isn't afraid of one's unconscious, which hopefully by the end of an analysis one isn't, uh, you find all kinds of remarkable things. <laughs> Uh, play a role in one's countertransference. You know, Philip, there was a what? There was a a, a time, and it, it 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 seems to have been uh, taken over as the main uh, belief of many uh, perspectives. That is, Paula Hyman wrote an article in 1950, in which she uh, said that. Uh, the analyst countertransference was uh, a, an expression of picking up on the patient's unconscious transference. So whatever one thought was a, a direct reaction to the patient's unconscious, and by 
thinking about it, one could see what the patient's unconscious was. Um, what's interesting is that in that article, she also warned about um, uh, taking in that ideal uh, without modifications, that, uh, that it isn't always the case, and the analyst has to figure it out. She didn't say it in those words, but that was the essence of it. But nobody refers to that part of her article in which she spread some doubts as to whether this was the case. Um, you know, that reminds me, when you talked about language action a few minutes ago and the effect it has on the analyst, um, the analyst feeling that something's being done uh, him or her, that sounds very much like projective identification, a Kleinian concept where the patient has a fantasy that he's somehow gotten into the analyst and is controlling him him or her. Um, so it, without getting into too long of an explanation, because I have like three more questions I want to get to in the final minutes, but is there a difference between language action and projective identification? Uh, I'm not a big fan of the concept of projective identification. I, I think if you break it down, it is... Uh, there are other ways of explaining the analyst's feelings. Um, I think it, it's, uh, put it this way, I think it's too simple to, if you start to feel something, if you feel it's projective identification, and, <coughs> uh, I mean, it's like believing that whatever you feel is picked up from the patient's and conscious. Uh, so, you know, Klein didn't believe in projective identification either. Uh, so, it, I mean, it's become a very popular concept and it, it's very seductive uh, to believe whatever you're feeling is what the patient has put into you. But I, I think it's much more complex than that. That would be um, an interesting paper I would like to write. The difference between Bush's concept of language action and and I don't, I don't know if I should say Klein's idea of projective identification since you said she didn't believe in it, but um, I guess that's where it came from. But but let's move on because I have a couple more questions. Um, I want to ask you about how does, since race has become an issue that a lot of us are uh, belatedly paying a lot more attention to in our lives and our professional work. Um, how does race, do race issues come up in your sessions with, with patients? And what are your, your thoughts about it as a psychoanalyst? <clears throat> Excuse me. It, it's a very interesting and complex question. Um, you know, um, what I, I find with my patients, once they're into the analysis, um, world events uh, somehow don't really even come into the analysis. They're caught up in the problems of their own individual psyches. And um, so, uh, I mean, this whole COVID thing, I mean, I am 
most of my patients never bring it up. Or the Black Lives Matter protest. They just, it just doesn't, it, they just don't, don't bring it up. Um, and uh, I just think it's, you know, patients find that we're in an, they're in analysis, they're, you know, preoccupied with figuring out what's on their mind or what their problem is. So, um, and, but I, I, I have to say that uh, I, I've only analyzed a small number of Asian patients, but most of them already grew up in the United States and uh, uh, they haven't really talked about the, the prejudice more they've talked about, you know, their mothers and their fathers, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm, you're making me think it might be that um, issues of race um, are, are dealt with or come up differently in an analysis than in, in a psychotherapeutic experience, if we're going to sort of differentiate the two. I have a pretty diverse clientele, and, and it is important for many of the people in psychotherapy with me to, for them to be trying to figure out how living in a racist um, or a, uh, a culture where race has had such profound impacts on how people are treated in the environments they grow up in, it's important sometimes for them to think through and, and bring to consciousness and been influenced. But it, you're making me think that... Um, that something may shift in terms of what's happening in an analysis that that maybe um, would mean that race issues are treated are sort of treated differently than they are in, mm-hmm. in other therapeutic contexts. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, back in the '60s when I was training, uh, I was in Denver and um, uh, I was. Living and there was an issue about race. I was living in a mixed race community, and um, in fact, there was a lot of issue. There were a lot of issues in Denver at the time about uh, uh, blacks and whites relating. And um, uh, I was actually in another uh, a number of uh, 24-hour focus groups. Uh, on this, with black people about this issue, and uh, you know, I, I have understood for you know a long time about the importance of racism and uh, for many black people, and it, it makes sense now also for white people to be thinking about it and the ways that we're prejudiced and the ways that we have. Uh, uh, difficulty with empathizing uh, with the problems of black people. So uh, I know we have more questions. Yeah, yeah. I want I wanted to ask to ask. Um, um, sorry, I'm going to myself, and it's um, confusing me. But my final question was: What do you What do you like to read? Who do you like to read? Um, what are some books you're reading now? And if there's any close friends or family you want to mention, please, please go ahead. I think they're my sister. Say that again. I'm, uh, what I read, what I'm interested in reading. Yeah. Who you like to read and who you're reading now or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in psychoanalysis. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, well, uh, you know, 
there, there are certain of people that I really admire their writing. Anything Otto Kernberg writes, uh, Andre Green uh, from uh, Paris, um, and Marilia Eisenstein from Paris. Uh, of the Kleinians, I'm a big fan of Michael Feldman. I always find what he writes interesting, although I disagree with him sometimes. Uh, Stefano Bolognini from uh, Italy, uh, written a a great book on empathy, uh, in in which I think he he talks about, let me me put it this way, I, I think he picks up on how what he calls is the um, uh, a, a kind of a false empathy that has come into our way of working. Uh, so we think we always have to be kind of empathy machines. Uh, and he, he calls that empathism in contrast to what he considers real empathy. Uh, and it's, it's just a brilliant exposition of that particular issue. Um, there's also a, a California analyst, Michael Diamond. Uh, uh, he's written a book on, I think, fatherhood. And uh, But whatever he writes, I find interesting. He's a really uh, deep thinker. So those are some of the people I read. Um, um, I don't find the journals right now particularly interesting. Um, uh, I, I find that they're filled with, uh, well, like the International Journal is mostly uh, beyond and Kleinian stuff, and even the quarterly has gone in that direction. It just is. There's nothing that excites me in the journals anymore, except <laughs> except there was a psychological quarterly article uh, by a, a colleague of mine, actually somebody who I trained, her name is Sarah Ackerman, and she writes about training in the United States in the latest quarterly, and that's very worthwhile reading. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, Ted Jacobs also is somebody that I- always find uh-huh. interesting. Well, maybe this is um, a good way to end with you emphasizing it's the books out there that are worth reading, not the journals, because this is the new books and in Psychoanalysis podcast. So thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to reading uh, those other two new books you have just coming out. But Philip, I want yeah. to say it's it's been a pleasure. To, you know, I didn't know how this was going to go, but you you carry on a great conversation, so I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm getting better at it. So so let's see. Let me say to our listeners, you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Fred Bush about his book, Creating a Psychoanalytic Mind, here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis um, channel, which is a, a channel of the New Books Network. Please contact me. Doc, um, you can reach me at drphiliplance at gmail.com. Philip has one L. Uh, to let me know your thoughts and questions about this show. And thank you for listening.